Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. This week, I was excited to chat with Robin Dunbar, Emeritus Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at Oxford. Robin has famously studied the evolution of the human brain, arguing that our brain developed to understand the complex social worlds we have created for ourselves. Most know him for Dunbar's number, or the limit to the number of individuals we can maintain stable relationships with. Robin has received more awards than could be counted, including the prestigious Huxley Memorial Medal. He has written various books, most relevant for this conversation, a book called Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationship. In this wide-ranging episode, we discuss why Dunbar's number is actually a whole series of numbers. Robin explains how he arrived at this number, why it is so relevant to everything from our globalized world and big cities to dating and maintaining friendships. Do psychopaths need friends to be happy? If you don't like people, should you move into the woods and never talk to anyone again? He explains why we gossip and what makes something funny. Finally, he shares some personal stories about his career and why his discovery of Dunbar's number was actually an accident. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, this week, I am super excited to have on the Stanford Psychology Podcast, Robin Dunbar, to talk about all things Dunbar's number and friendship and loneliness and trust and so many things I am really excited to be talking to you about today. But first of all, thank you for making the time. Uh, you're very welcome. All right, let's get the big question out of the way first, and I promise I will try to be more original after that one. <laughs> But what is Dunbar's number and why is it actually not one number but a series of numbers? Dunbar's number is really the natural limit on the number of meaningful relationships uh, that you can hold at any one time and it's about 150. It varies across the individuals from about perhaps 100 up to about 250. Uh, varies with age, it varies with personality as you might expect but On, on average, it's always about 150 across a population. I kind of think of it as all the people who, if you bumped into them at 3 a.m. in the departure lounge of Hong Kong airport, you wouldn't feel embarrassed about going up to them and slapping them on the back and saying, howdy, haven't seen you for ages. Because they would know who you are and you know, where you fit into their social world and you know who they are and where they fit into your social world. So there's a kind of a sense of history to the relationship here. You might not have seen them for a while, of course, but, you know, that makes the Im imperative of going up and saying hello on, on the obscure occasion when you have a chance to do it. That's to say if we could ever fly again anyway. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's that sense of a kind of a meaningful relationship. It includes all extended family that you feel you have those kind of relationships with, as well as people we would naturally count as, consider as friends, let's say people who are not family. And of course, it would include those in-laws of yours, if you're married, that, that are kind of in that same boat as, as close family. Um, now, it turns out that Dunbar's number is not actually a single number. 
Well, actually, let me back up a bit, a minute and just say the number came off the back of a prediction of what a natural group size for humans would be based on a, an equation relating group size and brain size in monkeys and apes. And all monkey and ape societies have a kind of multi-layered structure to them. Uh, some of the simpler societies, you know, it, it may, there may just be a single layer in the group, as it were, and if it's a small group. But it's, some of these species like baboons and chimpanzees and so on live in large social groups. The groups, in fact, in fact are highly structured with, with multiple layers. And humans just kind of do that on a bigger scale. So it turns out that Dunbar's number is not itself a single number, but a series of numbers which form a natural fractal sequence with a scaling ratio of about three. Let's say each layer is three times the size of the layer immediately inside it. Uh, and those, those layers occur at about five, and these layers count cumulatively. So each layer includes all the people that are kind of in, in the layer inside it. But those layers occur at 5, 15, 50, 150, and then they extend beyond that in human organizations and societies to an, at least three more, well, probably only three more layers, really. Um, one at 500, one at 1500, and, and one finally at 5,000. 5,000 identifies strangers, basically. So it, it, the, the way that was worked out is by asking people, have you ever seen this person before? And showing them a photograph and figuring out essentially what the difference is between, you know, I don't know who this person is, but I've seen that face right, walking down the street, um, that kind of sense, if you like. Um, now, those numbers turn out to be the natural sizes of groups for monkeys and apes in general. So, so some species live in groups of five, some species live in groups of about 15, some species live in groups of about 50, but only one species lives in groups of 150, and that's us. Um, now, those numbers appear to be what in graph theory would be called attractors. There's something odd about those numbers which causes animals, organizations, whatever, to gravitate towards them because somehow they just work better. So it's really weird. We don't really understand how that is, but we know that that's the case for the 150 in particular because a group of physicists I collaborate with have shown that that's actually the case for the 150. It's, it's a kind of critical point for information flow around social networks. Either side of that, 120 or 180, and information doesn't flow so well. Again, we kind of don't really understand why that's the case, but it appears to be the case mathematically. So it appears to be a very robust effect. And it looks like those lower numbers are likewise critical points too, that, that they're just kind of harmonics, but at lower levels. So the more, the better might not be true. If I have 5,000 friends on Facebook, maybe that's not the solution to my happiness. I, um, it's definitely not. <laughs> and one, one point, one po the reason for that, of course, is that relationships, meaningful relationships, cost you a lot of time and effort and emotional energy and what have you to create and maintain through time. The one estimate has been, it's not our work, but somebody else's, but one estimate is it takes about 200 hours of face-to-face -face time to turn a complete stranger, you know, you've just arrived at college, 
first lecture, <laughs> you, you meet, you meet, sit down next to somebody, and you get talking to them. How long does it take it take for that person to move from being somebody you've never met before to somebody maybe not your best friend forever, but at least kind of a good good friend that you kind of go out clubbing with or, or, or whatever. Uh, well, the estimate is about 200 hours of face-to-face time. That is a huge investment in time. Then you've got to maintain that. So the issue then is really the problem we face in many ways is, you know, our time is limited. Uh, our emotional capital is limited. <laughs> How do you distribute it among all the people in the world to get the best deal for yourself in terms of the benefits of friendships, if you like. And it turns out, uh, and again, another bunch of physicists I work with in Spain have shown mathematically that if you distribute your time optimally, where the time investment provides different benefits, then it turns out you get these numbers, 5, 15, 15, 150. And this is true not only of human social networks, but it's also true of chimpanzee networks as well. So the big problem you face is actually it would indeed be very good to have as many friends as you can possibly manage because friendships have a huge effect on your mental and physical health and well-being, uh, which we may come back to talk to talk about later. It depends on the quality of those friendships. And since that depends on how much time you give to each friend, if you if you really did try to make Every, everybody in the world, all, I don't know how many of us now, five billion, six billion, I can't remember, try to make all of those your friends, which you might try and do on social media, of course. Actually, the amount of time you gave to each one would be so small that it wouldn't actually create any kind of meaningful relationship and, and therefore you'd have much weaker friendship. And we already see that in the context of personality differences. So extroverts, as you might expect, have slightly bigger networks than social networks than introverts, but they both have the same social capital, that's to say time. It's just that extroverts are more willing to distribute their social effort thinly across more people, whereas introverts would rather make sure their relationships work and give more time to to each person. But as a result of that, the emotional closeness that extroverts have to the members of their social network, extended friendship circles, are actually demonstrably weaker <laughs> than those of introverts. So, you know, one's not better than the other. It's just two different ways of achieving the same objective in the end. They just prefer to do it kind of in different ways. Um, so he pays your money, he takes your pick, and, you know, you try to do the best you can. <laughs> but I think that's the key point. And the consequence of that is that we devote about 40% of our total social time and emotional capital to the five most meaningful people in our social world. They're what we call the shoulders to cry on friends because they're the ones that when your world falls apart are going to come riding over the hill as the cavalry and pick you up and and rescue you. So, you know, and that's because they're the ones who feel the most commitment to you that when you really need a lot of time and hand-holding, they're prepared to stop everything and do it for you. Whereas people further out, perhaps in the outer layers, around between 100 and, and 150, are going to say, oh, no, you know, I'm, I'm really busy right now. And, you know, you, you don't want to kind of 
well, come back next week and we'll see what we can do kind of response. You want it now if, if you're in, in deep tr- emotional trouble or the world has fallen around your, your, your ears. So, you know, the ones that really matter, we invest most heavily in, and that's that inner core of five shoulders to cry on friends. And that includes close family, of course. Um, and usually it's typically two close family, two close friends, and kind of one more from either side to make the number up. It's hugely costly from, in terms of maintaining those relationships such in order to get them to, to work like that. And then the next layer out, the, there's the sort of 15 layer, which is another 10 people in addition to your five uh, shoulders to crown friends. They, we devote another 20% of our total social capital to them. So 60% of your time and effort is given to just 15 people. So already you can see that the poor folk out in the outer reaches uh, towards the 150, and, you know, perhaps getting, well, our estimate is they get about 30 seconds a day of your time. So, you know, it takes quite a few months to build up enough spare time for each of them or for any one of them, even just to go and have a beer with them. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Never mind party with them. Um, so, you know, it, it's relationships are costly. Now, if I wanted to be more healthy and I went on the internet to find out how can I be more healthy and happy, I would find very detailed exercise uh, regimes. I would find recipes for what to eat. What I would not find as quickly is recipes for how to connect with friends. And even as a social psychologist who knows about the value of social connection for our happiness and health. I have read so much about connecting with strangers and family, but friendship? Very few people seem to be talking about it. And I didn't even realize that no one is talking about it until I read your book and realized, oh yeah, right, friends, they're great for us. <laughs> Why is this phenomenon so understudied? Uh, that is a very, very good question, actually, and I puzzled about it myself. Uh, it, it, I think at one level, it's because it falls between stools of different disciplines. So if you think about people who study animal behavior, they're often interested in the group context. Whereas if you look at what happens in psychology, both in the kind of experimental cognitively end of psychology, but and in the kind of social and developmental ends of psychology, you've got a much narrower focus of interest. And that's perhaps because the focus is on causation, the mechanisms that allow something to happen, you know, sort of where in the brain, you know, do we process causal reasoning or memory or whatever it is. And, and this kind of view of a very narrow focus, it seems to spill over into social and developmental psychology, where their conception of the social world we live in seems really to be confined to about three people, actually, <laughs> your parents. <laughs> Uh, your romantic partner, and your best friend. Oh, maybe we can make it four and say your child or your children right, right. If, you're old, if you're old enough. But uh, clearly, since most psychological research is done on that long-suffering group of people, undergraduates, uh, probably most of them don't have children, and therefore <laughs> that fourth relationship n almost never appears in social psychology. It's all about these kind of very, very close relationships, which are the kind of inner, innermost circle, you know, because actually there's a, another layer inside the five at one and a half, which is identifies that kind of really hugely time-consuming 
intimate relationship, romantic relationship, when you're younger, probably as a focus on, on your mum or your dad or somebody like that. And I, I, it always puzzles me that, you know, this seems to be the limit of the social world in social psychology, because actually those relationships are in fact embedded in the network of relationships, which we are juggling all the time. You know, it's, it's not a case of, I'm, this is my best friend. <laughs> Uh, and and that's all my social world is. No, you're trading off the time you give to, the extra time you give to make that best friendship, that best friend forever kind of friendship against all the other friendships of a weaker kind, but which are nonetheless important for you. And those trade-offs that you have to kind of decide are actually crucially important because, you know, if you, if you, if you reject somebody's invitation to go out to the cinema with them or go for a walk in the hills or something, you know, they feel rebuffed unless you've got a very good excuse. And, and the very good excuse is not really to say, well, actually, I'm going out with Susan today. <laughs> because when it was Penelope that asked you and discovers that she has a rival called Susan, <laughs> she's, she's not best pleased usually. So. So we ha- we engage. This is what makes the social world so complicated. Is we're constantly engaged in these kind of trade offs, where we're trying to get the, if you like, trying to get the best deal for ourselves. But also, that best deal involves being very sensitive and diplomatic towards the needs and interests of the other people in our social world, and, and making kind of well, not making too many goofs. Let's say. Given said complexity about the social world, one solution could be to say, I don't, I don't need people. <laughs> I'm going to move into the woods. I am done with people. I am done with society, which is an attitude oftentimes, of course, brought about by trauma and trying to trust people and having the trust betrayed and then deciding instead of rebuilding the trust, which can be painful and unfair that you even have to do this. I am done with humanity. I am, I am done. I am, I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm moving to the woods. How do you think about um, certain people who will claim I don't need friendship. I don't need any sort of social connection. I am happier off without. So we have a long history of a species of people doing that, beginning with the anchorites in the Egyptian desert <laughs> who went off and lived on their own, or yogis, you know, up in the snowy hills of, of the Himalaya mountains <laughs> in India and so on. Um, interestingly enough, that seems to be more common among boys than among girls. Girls are more intensely social than boys are. You know, all the pointers that we have both cognitive and the social, uh, sociological side of it in terms of, of friendship circles and so on, all make that very, very clear. So at that level, it's simply, you know, part of the grand richness and diversity of the natural world and the human social world in particular. You know, we're all on a, a dimension from massively social, you know, sort of hugging and, 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 and kissing, air kissing everybody and hugely friendly <laughs> to the opposite extreme where don't come near me, I'd rather be on my own in the mountain. Um, and that's just a kind of natural dimension And boys tend to lie at the less social end and the girls at the more social end. Obviously, as always with these things, overlap in the middle. But it is very conspicuous that um, um, it tends to be boys that want to go and live in the woods on their own much more often than, than, than the girls would do. So I think that's kind of normal, if you like. But it's also, and you point, pointed this out, actually, that 
you know, sometimes that happens as a result of experiences we have, because relationships are all based on trust. If somebody lets you down badly, then it really dents your confidence in terms of trusting other people, particularly for closer relationships where you are kind of giving a lot of yourself, as it were, uh, in the expectation of, of reciprocation from the other person. So if you've had a bad experience, it kind of makes you look more favorably on the idea of living in a cabin in, in the Sierra Nevadas on your own. What about a different group of people? What about psychopaths? Do psychopaths need friends to be happy? I suspect psychopaths probably just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of real classic extreme, which Simon Baron Cohen has, has kind of argued is simply the extreme male brain end of the spectrum is autistic spectrum people, which is a very wide spectrum of conditions, in fact. But, you know, at these sort of upper end, so in the extreme end, it can be obviously very debilitating and so on. Um, <clears throat> but at the sort of upper end, the Asperger syndrome end, where you have perfectly normal intelligence, sometimes actually better, much better than average intelligence, You know, these people just cannot figure out how the social world works. They, they, they're kind of, if you like, missing the key capacity, what's known as mentalizing, mind reading, that allows us seemingly effortlessly to understand what's going on, to understand other people's intentions. So I suppose people will be very good at coping with the social world because they're smart enough to figure out rules of behavior. Right. So, but but they don't really understand them. So they they make good behaviorists is one way of describing it, and that they can read behavior and make the kind of causal associations between X happening and Y Y consequences. But they can't figure out where this is causal linkage is not a physical link but a mental link. I.e. about intentions, the intentions of the person. That that's what they have trouble trying to figure out, and it makes the social world extremely difficult for them particularly large social gatherings are very um uh, dis they find very disturbing so you know this is just that part of that grand continuum okay if you like living in the mountains on your own i have no problem with that it's a very peaceful place <laughs> until other people turn up <laughs> <laughs> well move to live in the mountains alone or not make friends or not, all of these big life decisions, they are based in part on our view of human nature. What are people like? People are selfish. They can not be trusted, never trust anyone, or people can't be trusted. And maybe a more optimistic outlook on people. And what I find so interesting, and I'm curious about how you think about this uh, Dunbar's number kind of perspective, it seems that when not academics study human nature scientifically and comparative psychology compared to animals, but People in everyday language talking about human nature, oftentimes what they're talking about is just the few humans that they know, <laughs> right? You grow up in a very competitive and violent environment where everyone is out to get you and you somehow conclude that human nature is just this Hobbesian war of all against all. Yeah. And if you grow up in a more cooperative species, you know, people are fundamentally trustworthy. And it seems like we're not really able to generalize from our particular environment to what human nature is like unless we use science. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, but I mean, this is a great, the great problem um, that philosophers have grappled with for a very long time. You know, the famously, the Irish cleric and philo philosopher, Bishop Barclay, George Barclay, in the 18th century, 
said the entire world basically is inside your own mind. Mm. <laughs> there is some vague connection between some physical world out there and what you uh, sense and perceive within your own mind, but actually most of it is going on inside your own mind. And this is a kind of real problem. You know, how, how do we make this translation? And the answer, I think, comes partly that we really have to learn a lot of this kind of stuff. It's, it's kind of not hardwired into the genes. This is actually why we have such a long developmental period. You know, so we used to think that adult life began at puberty, which of course it pretty much does in, in most other mammals. But in fact, it turns out both from neurobiological evidence and also from the developmental psychology evidence that it probably takes the first 25 years of your life before you become a fully competent adult, <laughs> if there's ever such a thing as a fully competent adult, uh, because the this social world is so complex. You know, if you think about all the kind of Piagetian kind of things, you know, language learning, learning to reason, learning to count, learning quantities, all these kind of things, they happen very early. You know, a five-year-old has a pretty good mastery of language. Okay, their vocabulary is still a bit thin, and they, they will sort of build that as they age. But their grasp of how language works and how to kind of say things to get things done or to convey information to other people is pretty near adult levels when, in the grand scheme of things. But your mentalizing abilities at that stage are extremely thin. They're about as good as those of uh, great apes. Um, this is classic theory of mind. Um, that's second order intentionality. So you understand that somebody else is thinking about that something is the case. But adult humans can do five of those steps. So my mind to your mind, to uh, your friend Jemima's mind, to her friend Penelope's mind, to her friend Steve's mind, <laughs> right? And we can handle that complexity absolutely effortlessly. And it correlates very tightly with our ability to unpack clausal structure of sentences, of the grammatical structure of sentences. People vary somewhat in that, but the average is very much five orders of intentionality, as it's known, whereas five-year-olds and great apes can only manage two. So, you know, there's a big difference in there. Well, those extra three orders of intentionality don't really come to be until you're in your late teens. Uh, you master those. Even then, you're still learning uh, some of the complexities of the social world. So that seems to take about two and a half, the first two and a half decades uh, of your life, which is, and it seems to, that this is why primates in particular and um, humans especially, and a, a few odds and ends of other species like elephants, have these long periods of adolescence because you're given a, a computer at birth um, and you're given some kinds of genetically in, 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 in input in terms of how that computer works. But an awful lot is actually about putting the software programs into the thing. And that has to be done in a social environment because the social world is just too complex. You, you, know, you can't legislate genetically for how the social world is is. is going to work in the future. And that, I kind of use the analogy of a, of a football pitch here. 
um, you know, that there, what you're given in your brain is essentially, you know, the white lines on the piece of grass <laughs> and a rule book, which says, you know, you can throw the ball in this kind of way and, and you can kick it in that kind of way, but there are certain things you can't do. But that doesn't tell you how to win the game, right? right. The, the, the way you, you win the game is through a lot of practice, learning what other people do uh, on the pitch, on the day. And that's, you know, that's never repeated twice it, ever. <laughs> it's every, every game you play is different. So you have to have this enormous flexibility to handle this very complex, dynamic social world. I, I sometimes describe with apologies to my physics friends, you know, the, the human social world is the most complex thing in the universe, period. And <laughs> nothing in physics comes close to it. <laughs> um, they usually get very annoyed at that, that point. And they go, what about quantum theory? I, you don't even understand quantum theory, so what's the problem? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, well um, you're not on the psychology podcast, you are, you are safe here. No physicists. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the point is that, you know, these, these, these things do require a lot of learning and it just takes a very, very long time to experience that. And what's interesting, I think, is most of that learning is with your peers. Your, whatever your parents tell you or your, your church minister or priest or whatever is of minimal importance. Well, that's not quite true, actually. Um, I guess what they're doing very often is providing you some general rules. Be nice to share your toys with these kids. <laughs> don't grab the biggest slice of cake on the plate <laughs> those kind of general rules but those rules are not enough to get you by in, in the real social world they kind of make the social world work a little bit more efficiently because they almost all of them are designed to minimize frictions that would occur but at the end of the day it's how you interact with specific people that really counts Every individual is different, and, and that can only come through basically playing in the sandpit of life with, with the other kids on the block, right? So it's this sort of childhood experiences you have with your peers, which is why probably as we grow up, we want to play with kids our age, and that kind of never changes. If you look at people's friendship circles, one of the defining characteristics, or two defining characteristics, one is almost all of them are the same sex as you. 70% of men's social networks, 150 consist of men and 70% of women's social networks consist of women. And that number remains absolutely constant from the age of five to the age of 85. It doesn't even wiggle. It's extraordinary. And the other one is age. Yeah, most of your friends and the family you associate with are obviously things like parents and grandparents and children, which are clearly very small numbers of people. But most of the others tend to be in the same age bracket as you. So this is where I confess to you that I just turned 26 three months ago. <laughs> so I have well, <laughs> welcome, <laughs> welcome to the to the to, to the full adult club. <laughs> <laughs> so as you say this, I have two reactions. One reaction of relief, where I think about all the misunderstandings I had with people and how confused I have been about people since I was born. Thank God, well I've had time to grow up, but also panic. <laughs> Because really, this is as good as it's got. I mean, I know people can still learn and you learn a lot about people over time. But it seems like part of why we struggle, you know, we, we 26-year-olds <laughs> and beyond, we adults, is because we are living in a world that is very different from what we evolved in, from the environment we evolved in, right? And I know way more than 150, 5,000 people and there's a lot of things going on that are different from uh, the way we evolved. 
this is true. I, I, I'm actually less convinced about that claim in terms of the specifics of the social world within which we actually live our personal lives, if you like. That's, say, the 150 people. That just seems to have been very stable uh, forever, probably, um, in that it seems to be completely cross-cultural. Indeed, you know, we can see good evidence for that number through historical time over the last several thousand years, in fact. Um, What is different, and this really does make a big difference, is the fact that our natural living arrangements have changed dramatically since the invention of the bicycle, it's sometimes famously claimed as the most important thing in human evolution, was the invention of the bicycle, (laughs) because it allowed people to move, right? So historically, until very, very recently, and to some extent, this is still the case in many parts of the world, Um, it'll be pretty much still the case, you know, in the sort of remoter corners of the US, up in the mountain communities, or, you know, in the sort of uh, deserts uh, of Arizona and places where you've got quite small communities. The village of one to 200 people, which is the classic size of villages, was the basic social grouping. That's who you saw most of the time. Okay, you know, occasionally people turned up from somewhere else, either demanding taxes from you <laughs> coming to raid you or just wandering through. But most of your life was was involved with just this small group of people. And on top of that, because it was a kind of closed community, everybody shared the same 150. So there's your village of 150. You spend most of your time in it and everybody knows everybody else. Okay, your grandmother is not the same as your friend uh, Pete's grandmother. They happen to be sisters. <laughs> you know, they're, they're still different people. Um, but nonetheless, everybody fits into your social world and, uh, and everybody else's social world. Somewhere. And then what seems to have happened kind of really after the Industrial Revolution, is that to some extent, I suppose, the Agricultural Revolution in the Neolithic, when people started living in, in bigger and bigger towns and cities. But what's kind of, I think, made the big difference was the invention of long-distance travel. So really, actually, the big watershed is probably the end of the Second World War when cheap air travel and ship travel became widely available and people moved much more than than they had done previously. So what happens now is instead of your 150 people being, you know, literally in your block, they're scattered all over the place, you know, and classically so in, in the US, which has been a much more mobile society than perhaps certainly Europe or other parts of the world, at least until very recently, where, you know, okay, you grew up in Los Angeles, let's say, but your mother's sister and her family live in Florida and uh, granny and grandpa live in New Hampshire, for goodness sakes. You know? So you don't get to see them very often. These are mythical creatures. <laughs> 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 Adults keep mentioning once in a while you get to see them. Maybe. So your kind of life is scattered. And I think what's especially happened now in, in the recent decades is that then your people are so mobile. So, okay, historically... People have always moved. That's the history of the US, after all. You're all immigrants, most of you, from other parts of the world. You arrive, you know, sort of, uh, and kind of bed in somewhere as best you can among strangers. But what happens in those contexts? 
as happened in the context of cities, where cities have always attracted people to come in from the um, uh, rural uh, areas outside for, for, because of job opportunities. You know, what they've done is recreate local communities on the street where they live. You know? So if you look at kind of what happened historically to the, the waves of immigrants coming in from to the US uh, in, in the 19th century uh, in particular, you know, they kind of built communities uh, on the streets. Sometimes hard work because these are all strangers and you don't have a kind of natural framework provided by family to provide a, a structure to that. But, you know, it kind of worked okay. But I think what's happened now with much greater opportunity for travel, particularly for work, go away for college and all these kind of things that we do, is your life ends up as a kind of trajectory around the country, you know, so quite literally born and grew up in San Francisco, but you decide to go to the University of Utah for college because that sounds interesting or to get away from your parents or (laughs) whatever these reasons that motivate. Uh, people to choose the university. You graduate from there and you get offered a job in New York. So off you go to New York for a few years. Then the the boss says, listen, we need somebody to front up our new office down in uh, Miami. Would you consider it? So you go, okay, fine, let's go down there. And then you get down there and actually you, you kind of don't like the place. Or you don't like the people. I don't know. For some reason you decide to move on and, and a job comes up in Phoenix, Arizona. Well, let's go there. And so you end up with this sort of little groups of small groups of friends that you meet uh, in the course of work or, or socializing in each of these places and your social network which typically consists for us with our small family size of about half family and half friends. Of course, the family is always stable. That doesn't really change very much, aside from the usual births and deaths, as it were. But the friendships have quite a high turnover. And what you end up with, instead of the, as would be the case in your sort of ancestral village, where the friends remain stable as well. Now, in fact, they're broken up into these small groups of maybe five or 15 clusters of friends that you made while you were in a particular location. So you've got your kind of New York friends, your Utah friends, your Miami friends, your Phoenix friends, and these don't know each other. They never meet. They don't meet your parents either or your family. So that it creates these kind of dispersed, much less tightly bound networks. And I think that causes lots of problems in that it means your support networks are much more fragmented and and therefore less bound to each other because what makes support networks really work is that everybody feels a sense of obligation to each other. And that part of that obligation is the knowledge that if you kind of fail to provide Jimmy with the support he wants on the one occasion when he needs it, everybody else wags their finger at you. And especially great-grandma sitting beside her hearth. (laughs) Because Jimmy and you are her descendants, so she's got equal interest in both of you, right? So there's that complex web of interrelationship causes people to be self-policing in small communities, whereas you have room to hide in the in the modern context where your network is more distributed and, and i think that contributes to what in part to the reason why a lot of these kind of big sink urban centers 
are so dysfunctional socially because they just don't have those community structures to support them. And you, you contrast that with something like the Hutterites or maybe the Amish over in Pennsylvania, Hutterites up in the Dakotas, you know, where they really work very hard to keep their communities at 150 for that, primarily for that very reason. And they're very clear about it, the Hutterites in particular. So say, you know, if you have more than about 150 people in your community, you can't manage it by peer pressure alone. You have to have a police force. <laughs> and we don't want police forces. <laughs> That's not part of our way of doing stuff. So they deliberately split their communities up once they get, well, the average size at which they split them is about 165. That's to try and keep the number within, because communities have these unfortunate habits of just growing, because people will insist on having babies. <laughs> So you know, a natural consequence of communities is, is they increase in, in, in size. So you have this constant battle to try and keep the numbers down uh, from their point of view. It just means you, know, you have to keep splitting communities uh, every decade or so in order to keep pace with it. And it, it, you know, it really seems to work very well for them because that, that if you keep your community down below that size, you have this sense of communal obligation, which uh, makes things work somehow more smoothly why it is an interesting question as to why it won't work when the numbers get too far beyond 150 you know out towards 500 or a thousand or what have you it just doesn't work in that way but you know that this seems to be how the human social brain works if you like so we we, we have to deal with it as we find it but it is kind of um kind of troubling because i think i think that this fact that our network become fragmented and dispersed over very big geographical areas. They're not all literally in your block that you can walk around, knock on the door and say, I feel dreadful. Can we go and have a coffee or a walk in the hills or something? You know, it you know reduces the number of people that provide your support network directly. Because what really seems to be important is that face-to-face -face component of it that that physical the, the fact that they can put their arm around your shoulder and say listen the world isn't so bad <laughs> let's go and have a beer or something if if as you say it is so hard to keep track of people in our in-group in our inner circle it certainly is hard to keep track of all the people outside of it right and there's a lot of work in psychology of course on you know our tribalistic tendencies that we like our in-group and we dislike all the out-groups and we have these crude stereotypes about what the outgroups are like. How do you think about the relationship between Dunbar's numbers, I guess the, the, the series of numbers, and how we think about outgroups, right? We talk about, you know, those Mexicans and those Australians, and we have all these crude stereotypes that are so vague and nonsensical oftentimes, yeah. but maybe we can't help it to some extent. I think this goes actually back to some very deep principles about how we create friendships, but also what the function of communities actually is. So communities exist for all monkeys and apes and therefore humans too, to buffer you against the stresses and unexpected disasters that the world we live in keeps throwing at us. So they're, they're your, you know, this form of bonded sociality you find in, in monkeys and apes and humans, you know, has been the secret of our success as a, the primates as a whole in evolutionary terms, because they provided us with this ability to 
cope with uh, the vagaries of the world and still survive and successfully reproduce and so on. So that's why we live in this. And, and the main problem you're coping, all these species are coping with is, is predation. You know, group living is, is the solution for problem of predation, essentially, or in the case of humans, added to that raiding by you know people in the next door valley. <laughs> which seems to have become an increasing problem as population densities rose in, in Neolithic times in particular. So problem, if you like, is how do you create this sense of belonging, keep that group held together? And the way we seem to do that is essentially built around homophily. So one of the defining characteristics of all group is that they have things like a common history and a common kind of view of the world and these kind of things. And, and these principles turn out to be fundamental to how we build friendships. So friendships in monkeys and apes generally is what we psychologists would refer to as the two-process mechanism. It involves two mechanisms in the brain working in parallel to each other. One is the endorphin system, um, which is at root part of the brain's pain management system. Um, that's what endorphins are primarily there for. But it turns out also they're extremely good at creating a sense of bondedness to an individual. And that comes from the fact that um, if you trigger the release of endorphins, you get this sense of calmness and relaxation and all's well with the world and peace and bondedness to the individuals and trust in the individuals to do this. So now monkeys do this through social grooming. We still do that a lot. You know, we we, we don't have so much fur to groom, uh, just a little bit on the top of the head. But, you know, we've, we've replaced that with kind of cuddling and arms around the shoulder and stroking and patting and all these kind of things because the mechanism depends on the hand movements across the skin surface triggering a, a very specialised neural system from the that links the skin to particular areas in the brain that trigger eventually the endorphin system. So we use that. We use it. It's not something we do with everybody because it's a very intimate thing, even in monkeys and apes. We only do it with our more closer members of our, our social network. What we've then done is supplement that with a bunch of other stuff that also turns out to trigger the endorphin system, but on a bigger scale because we don't have to be in physical contact with us. So laughter, singing, dancing, eating together, the rituals of religion, telling emotional sub-stories, all these trigger the endorphin system and in a way that it can be done virtually and therefore you can do it with many individuals because this physical touch component of social grooming, its intimacy means you can only do it with one person at a time. So I sometimes challenge people, try cuddling two people in the back row of the cinema Next time you go, I can bet you anything you like, one of them will leave in a huff in about 10 minutes because you've not been paying them enough attention. Right? So you just mentioned the keyword. I have been looking for the segue because this is one of the questions I've really wanted to ask you and I have no idea how to bring it up, but you just mentioned laughter. Laughter can bring us together. It can be bonding. That doesn't answer the question that I have, but it gets to it, which is what makes something funny to begin with? How does humor work? It is so mysterious to me. I know I just became socially <laughs> conscious with my 26 years, so what do I know? But what makes something funny? I think that's kind of one of the conundrums of life that has puzzled 
philosophers and a lot of other people for <laughs> a very, very long time. Well, I mean, even the great Greek philosophers like Aristotle exercised about exactly what it is that makes, well, storytelling in general, but jokes so funny. You know, why do we laugh? The answer is, to some extent, actually, I suppose historically, in evolutionary terms, laughter probably goes back to, to slapstick comedy. So I think it came in very, very early on. It's much, so if we think about this kind of social toolkit we have that involves these things like singing and dancing and storytelling, most of those come in quite late because a lot of them depend on language and being able to have conversations. You know, it gets pretty boring to sit around a dinner table, or if you're a Roman, I suppose you used to lie around the dinner table. It gets pretty boring if you just sit there and eat and can't say anything, right? The whole point about doing that socially is to be able to have a conversation and talk to, to each other, as well as engaging in the eating of nice food. So those kind of things really depend on the evolution of really language as we have it now, let's say really sophisticated language. And that means it probably only came in with our own species a mere 200,000 years ago. Now, the kind of our immediate precursors, the Heidelberg folk and the descendants, the Neanderthals and the Nisavins and so on, um, the other archaic humans, they certainly had language of a kind, but it kind of was a much less sophisticated language because it just could did not have the same mentalizing capacities as we do. Herein lies the issue with jokes, I think, because our, how funny we perceive a joke to be depends on the number of, number of mentalizing states in it. So the number of mind states involved. The more mind states involved in the joke, the funnier it is up to the limit that we can cope with. And if you try and have a joke that has seven mind states in it, including your own, is just not funny. It's too complicated. It's like trying to read a postmodern novel and you know, nothing makes sense. And it becomes less funny after that point. So, you know, the difference between Neanderthal jokes and our jokes would kind of like caricature it as the difference between, I don't know, 12 or 13 year old joke and um, uh, adult jokes. You know, adult jokes are very sophisticated, relatively speaking. The jokes of 12 to 15 year old boys are very funny to 12 to 15 year old boys but on the grand scheme of things. <laughs> they're on the scale of lavatory humor. <laughs> um, so, you know, and this is not to under pitch the intellectual capacities of, of Neanderthals because, you know, most of the rest of the things they could figure out were pretty much the same as ours. But the social domain, you know, they weren't in the same league. Is the point. So, Laughter had been really in place for much, much longer than that. It, it probably dates back about two million years because a lot of it is very visceral. And we can't control it. That's what makes me think that it's kind of has its origins in slapstick. It's things that happen. It's a form of chorusing, really. So it's sitting around the campfire, kind of engaged in a form of singing, if you like. And it, and it does depend. The mechanisms of breath control are not the same as those involved in language, but the the requirements for singing in terms of the mechanics of it and the neural control of it are for laughter are very um, demanding, being rejigged because we share laughter with, with the great apes. And in fact, the voicing of laughter, the sound we make, comes from the play invitation vocalization of monkeys and apes generally. 
or at least the old world monkey snakes, the very social monkey snakes. So they have this sort of pant-like vocalization that they use. These would be things like baboons and, and the like. Pant-like vocalizations that are, are kind of invitations to play as they approach somebody they want to play with. But also sometimes they, they will use it as a commentary on what they're doing, which kind of effectively says, uh, listen, you know, if I bite you too hard, I don't mean it. I'm just playing. Don't bite me back. <laughs> so it's a kind of commentary on, on, on what's going on. Now, this kind of signal seems to have been transformed into humans to make into what we have as laughter. Because this, this pant-like vocalization is a inhalation or exhalation, inhalation, sort of pant <gasps> and, a, and a drawing in of the breath to fill the lungs again. And, and what we've done is disposed of, got rid of, the inhalation, so we just pant, 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 pant out, and that exhausts us, and that's probably what triggers the endorphin system from it, the stress on the musculature and the oxygen centers, if you like, detection centers in the brain, all these things going crazy, which is why you kind of end up dying with laughter, because you've <laughs> just exposed all the air from your lungs, you know, but boy, is it giving you an endorphin. <laughs> so this is just a kind of chorusing around the campfire without kind of words in them. But then uh, once language comes into play, it gives you a mechanism for managing the frequency of laughter because otherwise, you know, slapstick comedy, it depends on something happening to trigger the laughter. It depends on somebody slipping on the banana skin to make people laugh. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to laugh. So jokes become a way of kind of dropping banana skins through the course of a conversation. And they, they become... A, they depend on language, and they depend on the complexity of language. So there is a sense that what makes a joke funny is the surprise element to it. You know, the sh classic shaggy dog story that takes you off and meanders all around and finally gets to some joke at the end uh, that makes you laugh. But it's that sense of being able to manage that. And it's clearly important because if you have a conversation if you get stuck at a party in a corner of the room with somebody who never tells jokes in any form and never laughs, you know, it's kind of like having a conversation with Mr. Spock on, on Star Trek. <laughs> you kind of, where's the bar? <laughs> Let me get out of here. We pepper our conversations all the time with kind of little amusing asides, you know, to make you make you laugh. We tell stories to make ourselves laugh. And this goes back to this other part of this bonding mechanism, which I never got around to. That the, the other half of this dual process mechanism is basically a shared culture. And that reinforces the fact that you belong to a community. Now, th these shared culture elements is, is what's known as the homophily effect or the birds of the feather effect, birds of a feather flock together, seems to be extremely important in our friendships, how we, how we create our friendship, and also is the root of creating communities. So in friendships, these are what we refer to as the seven pillars of friendship, and there's like seven dimensions. They're like a kind of supermarket barcode, but instead of being on your forehead, they come out of your mouth right? They're things you say, and they're all cultural. So you have to learn them quite literally. So they're things like sharing the same language, growing up in the same area, having the same hobbies and interests, having the same worldview, let's say religious, moral, and political views, having the same life trajectory, kind of having been to college in the same place, having studied the same degree, having the same career, these kind of things. Uh, and last but not least, 
sharing the same musical taste and sharing the same sense of humor. So we're back at laughter again, right? Now, these are all things which seem to define a community that you belong to. So they, first of all, they define the community you grew up in, hence speaking the same language and growing up in the same area. You know, oh, you remember Joe's Cafe? Yeah, we were there. We used to go there when we were kids, you know, maybe a generation before you did, but we know those streets. We know those kind of old watering holes in, in the town. That was great fun and what we did. So those kind of points of shared experience in life and shared way of looking at the world. And I think the problem with that is, and this goes back to the question you were asking earlier, is it just automatically sets up an us versus them distinction. And that kind of ramifies all the way through the, the Dunbar circles, as it were, because it turns out that the more of these dimensions you share with somebody, the more emotionally close you feel to them and the more willing you are to be altruistic to them. And you automatically, those circles themselves are kind of built up on an us versus them principle. If it's a question of one of your shoulders to cry on friends falling out with one of the people in, in your 150 circle, then you support your shoulders to cry on friend against a distant person. And, you know, that's because you share more things in common. Now, I think the reason for that is partly is it identifies whom you can trust. If you grow up in the same, if you come from the same community, you know how that community works. You understand what it is that when people say, I'll do this for you uh, next week, you know, do they mean it or not? You know, can you trust them? And therefore, you don't have to go around asking it. And you, it's a kind of shortcut, actually. It cuts through that 200 hours getting to know somebody because what you're essentially relying on is a third-party approval that this person's okay. You've never met them before, but you know they come from the same community. You know how they think because they're a member of that community. You don't need to know anymore. You can get on with life with them. Okay, there's some details you may have to figure out, but by and large, gives you quick basis for, for building relationships. And actually, what's kind of interest, most interesting in this context is that the one thing which, turn, or the two things maybe that turn out to be really important for meeting strangers, whether you think they will you know, make good friends, is shared musical tastes. Hey, you like Led Zeppelin too? Wow. <laughs> and Shared worldview, so the same moral and political and religious views, right? And anything else, including ethnicity, kind of fades into the background and becomes unimportant. In those seven pillars stuff, that kind of eradicates all the other kinds of things that which act as kind of distant cues, you know, things like gender and race and age and all these other things kind of fade into the background, become much less important. So the problem with them, though, is, as I say, is they just automatically seem to cr be created in terms of an us versus them principle. And some of them work extremely well on a very large scale. And, and religion specifically is, is the one I have in mind here, because it seems to be in, have extraordinary capacities to create this sense of belonging to a community with complete strangers that you've never met before because they live on the other side of the world. They're a member of your village. And we think of it in terms of village. We don't think of it in terms, psychologically, we don't think of it in terms of, I don't know, a billion people who belong to the Catholic Church. We think of them as in our village, attending our, our mass at our church or whatever your particular religious uh, predilections might be. 
Um, it seems to be extraordinary, and this is this is what the these seven pillars seem to be designed designed to do. But a they work extremely well in creating a sense of bonding, but it's bonding against everybody else out there, and that's in the end where it kind of falls apart because we are so susceptible to persuasion by I don't know charismatic leaders or what have you in a political context that these can then these this sense of bonding can very easily be triggered for conquering the infidel or whatever it may be <laughs> this, brings <laughs> them, us to the point. this brings us to the point that we have to watch out for as you say people who might be friends and who might share our music tastes in common and political preferences but also people who are dangerous to the in-group who are a little bit too status seeking or power hungry selfish psychopathic whatever it is one thing that helps us get this kind of social information of course is gossip right this person did this bad thing over there and they did this and by the way this person is single and you would get right critical information and yet gossip is getting such a bad rep at least in our society maybe this is not a intercultural phenomenon why is gossip getting such a bad rep if it's useful well i think this is just a kind of classic case with everything in biology and psychology you know there is there is no such thing as perfection there is no such place as nirvana on earth we're always dealing with trade-offs so everything in both the physical life we lead and the mental life we lead has many things these things have benefits but they can be overdone when they're overdone they don't you know, salt is good for you but if you have too much of it it's bad for you Protein is good for you if you eat too much of it. It's bad for you, extremely bad. That's why a lot of the expeditions exploring the Midwest in American 18th century history, early 19th century history, came unstuck and all ended up dying. Is because the only thing they had to eat was meat because they could shoot it, and they didn't know which plants you could eat. So they're eating these very, very high meat-based, protein-based diets, and it, most of them just ended up dying from protein sickness. Oxygen is very good for you, but have too much of it, it kills you. <laughs> Water is good for you. Drink too much of it, and, you know, it doesn't do you any favors whatsoever. By the same token, in the psychological world, the, the same things uh, kind, of, kind of happen, I guess. So the short answer is these things are always trade-offs, and we... I suppose the particular case of gossip actually is, is the classic case because gossip in its original meaning meant literally what you did with your god sibs. That's to say your peer group equivalent of your god parents. That's where the word comes. So it's hanging out. That's all it means, essentially. And you're chatting away. And, you know, what you're learning in the course of conversation like that is how What's going on in, in, in the social world? Who's been misbehaving and who hasn't? And it allows you to work more effectively in the social, social context. Well, the problem with practically everything in the psychological world can be exploited for good and for bad. You know, once you have something in place, you, it can be exploited for other purposes. So something like that is very... And I guess it also comes back to the fact that we're very dependent on reputation. Reputations are very important in, in a generic sense because they relate to trust. And therefore, for you to be able to manipulate somebody's perception of a third party's reputation, it has the holds out the prospect of you know offering you an extra kind of leg into the social world, if you like, to get what you want. So, you know, don't don't go out 
you know, socializing with Jimmy, you know, you end up buying him drinks all night because he never paid. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, these kind of things, you know, don't go playing golf with so-and-so, you know, they're always cheating. And, and in some sense, this is also just part and parcel of managing how the social world works, because it's also a form of policing, making sure everybody sticks to the rules, but then you can, you can exploit it. Uh, and there's nothing you can do about that, except that it's clearly, whether that's a comment on modern life, I don't know, but it's clear that the word gossip has come to have these very negative overtones, you know, for a term which didn't actually have any negative <laughs> overtones originally, it was all very positive. Whether that's because we do more and more of it than, than our ancestors is an interesting question. But it's clear that at the same time, we also are very wary of gossips, right? People who gossip a lot and are perceived as being destructive gossips who are always being very negative about other people are not liked on the whole. And I the classic case, I guess, is there is a sense in which it's kind of well-established effect in social psychology that people who have information to offer about other people in, in the community are kind of attractive. You want to find out what's going on, you know, what's Jimmy been up to now? So you go and ask so-and-so because they always know. There is a sense at which they can push that too far. If you can get a very bad reputation as a, as a, um, a gossiper, as it were, uh, which causes people to back off from you. So it's back to this sort of principle that a little bit of something is good for you in life, but too much isn't. We are well running up against time. We are above time already. <laughs> And I want to be mindful of your time, of course. So to wrap this up, I want to get personal a little bit. And to ask you, thinking back when you were young, you know, before you became socially conscious at 25, <laughs> um, in college and figuring things out, in terms of what you envisioned for your life and compared to the life you have been living so far and what you might have planned for the future, do these realities match or did you have very different plans for what you would do as a socially conscious adult? Oh my goodness. I, I, I don't think my current life and trajectory, career trajectory, uh, bears any relationship whatsoever to what I thought might be the case. I mean, for starters, I grew up in, in Africa in basically a completely different cultural environment. Would have had, I mean, I didn't, we didn't leave until I was in my 20s. Um, so I really did, you know, sort of grow up there. It's my home, if you like, home environment. And my Expectations of what I might have done if we if I'd if we'd stayed there. You know, I hadn't come to high school and and um, college in the UK would would have been very very different. So early on, I'm not sure I had any great expectations other than the kinds of things people did in in Africa in in the 50s and and uh, in, in particular in the 60s. I kind of got sidetracked in a way in my later teens, largely through the influence of my cousin, who was a little older than me, but with whom I, uh, I, it was his family I lived. And he introduced me to philosophy and got me interested in philosophy. And I, actually, by the time I went to university, that was all I was interested in. So I was not a scientist at high school. My specialisms at high school were history and English. 
and I regarded science as kind of the weird stuff which really strange people did. Intellectuals uh, did serious things like history, which is my favorite subject, and or philosophy. And so I wanted to do philosophy at university, but I uh, I ended up going to to Oxford as a university as an undergraduate. You can't do philosophy on its own at Oxford then or now. You have to do it something else. And I chose what was then a new course, philosophy and psychology. It had only been going a couple of years when I went as the least bad option. And I had no idea what psychology was really. Because in those days, psychology didn't feature school curriculum at all. Anywhere, I don't think. It was just the, the 60, early 60s. And so, you know, it sounded vaguely interesting. But, uh, certainly a lot better than the alternatives. But it, what it did was introduce me to, by, to the sciences. And, and there were two key components to this. One was the whole of the first year was taught by the zoologists rather than the psychologists. It was called comparative psychology, but actually it was ethology, animal behavior. And it was taught by Tim Bergen, the great, one of the founding fathers of ethology and behavior ecology, as we have it now, who got the Nobel Prize for, for that work. So I was introduced to animal behavior in a context where I would never have thought about it because all my experience of animal behavior in Africa was at the other end of a rifle barrel. Hmm. <laughs> Very familiar with animals but they were all at the other end of a rifle barrel. <laughs> so here was a completely different way of looking at them in terms of their behavior. Also, the psychology, of course, introduced me to various aspects of the science background to psychology. So as to the limited extent, we neuropsychology was developed, you know, the brain and so on. Uh, in those days, physiological psychology was very important. Uh, you know, sort of those kind of more hard-nosed ends and and uh, statistics. Statistics is a major component. So it's introduced me to a branch of life I didn't know existed. Uh, and it was fun. You know, numbers are fun to play with. That kind of drew me into being a, um, a scientist rather than a humanities person. I began to realize that, you know, you had to have a head the size of a planet to do philosophy properly because it's just damned hard stuff <laughs> and it's, you know life is easier and more interesting if you do psychology and then also the third kind of thing that happened about that time was I had some friends they wanted to do an expedition Oxford University had this tradition of doing expeditions to obscure parts of the world and some friends of mine wanted to go to Ethiopia and they we decided to do a project studying baboons in the wild and, and that's what we did and that kind of introduced me back in Africa, my corner of Africa, to a completely new way of looking at animals through a pair of binoculars and, and check sheets and recording what they do. Uh, that actually sowed the seeds then for the rest of my career. But the rest of it was a series of accidents because if you look back on how the ideas around Dunbar's number and all these other things have developed, they developed largely as a result of accidents. So the original social brain hypothesis component with its prediction of Dunbar's number was completely accidental. Had just had the idea of, of I was trying to solve another problem and I just thought this was vaguely related to that problem, plot group size against brain size. It sparked a whole new thing, but everything else came out of the back of that was in many ways the collaboration with lots of different people from different disciplines. So physicists, neuroimaging people, neuro neurobiologists, economists, historians, <laughs> name it. A, it was a lot of fun, 
doing doing stuff in groups. <laughs> so have, creating this sense of community, um, but also having that diversity of inputs from different fields was very enlightening and, and opened up things which I could never have done on my own. So this is, this is very much a communal project in more senses than one. I'm sure there's been and, 150 and people who helped you along the way. I would probably guess that's about right, actually, which, <laughs> which essentially means I have no friends. They're all collaborators. <laughs> but, you know, collaborators become friends. <laughs> well, that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was a wonderful conversation. A great pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsypod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.